0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 11 this morning. If you're borrowing a Bible from us, that will be page 1007. Is peer pressure a good thing? Well, it depends. We are social creatures. We can't help but be shaped by the people around us. Peer pressure presents a problem when it comes with intimidation and the threat of disapproval. And we find ourselves, young and old, doing all kinds of things because of peer pressure. But it's not always a bad thing. How about when it's inspiring, not at the threat of someone's disapproval, but with the prospect of God's approval? And peer pressure doesn't have to just be those around us, but in the case of Hebrews chapter 11, those who are just like us, who have gone before us, that great cloud of witnesses down the ages. We begin this week. Four sermons in the book of Hebrews. Let's read now verses 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. To this point in the book of Hebrews, and we're about 20 weeks into this book, by this point, our author has spent no small amount of time arguing that we should move on from the old covenant in this way, not saying that the Old Testament or the old covenant is bad, but that it is fulfilled in Jesus. And we must move on from it. The readers of this original letter would have been tempted to slump back into some of those more concrete, visual uh, expressions of their faith that were bound up in externals of the flesh, marked by things you could touch, see, and feel. It was a very physical era in God's plan. But all of that was just preparatory like a show and tell. God was showing. Well, now he's sent his son. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. And now we've come to God, the Holy of Holies, through his son Jesus, our high priest, who's at the Father's right hand. We have everything that old system was pointing to. Point is, and this, is that the author has been making a contrast between the old covenant, what came before Jesus, and, and, and the new covenant in, in Jesus. But it would be a mistake for us to conclude that we have nothing to do with what comes before Jesus. Not only because those structures, Old Covenant structures, that tent and the sacrificial system and all that blood, not only because that pointed to and prefigured what Jesus would do, and it's instructive for other reasons, but because the stories of the people in the Old Covenant, are not so much unlike our stories and your story. They too had to believe what God said to them in their day and what God promised to them in their future. And they had to lay hold of that future by faith in what God said. Well, isn't that our hardship too? In the face of maybe insult or mockery or it just doesn't look like God's going to do it, We have to lay hold of God's future promises by faith. We can relate with the, the people of the Old Testament. And this morning we get a summary, a beginning of a survey of our Old Testament. Not in this case by way of contrast with what Jesus has brought, but by way of comparison. In these Figures that we will learn about and be reminded of and study over the next few weeks should help clarify what it means to live the life of faith for us, and more than clarify what it means, but compel us to believe God's promises by faith more fully. Clarifying for us the life of faith and compelling us to live a life of faith. Well, let's begin with the question, what is faith? He begins, now faith is. So it didn't take too much creativity to figure out what our first header of material would be. Now often when we think about faith, we think in especially subjective terms. Like way unbiblical terms would be wishful thinking, Fuzzy feelings, a uh, good attitude toward God, generally. Uh, maybe a little darker here would be. Some would say, uh, faith is, it's blind, in that it it believes in spite of when someone says. We, maybe A Christian believes what they believe in, blind faith. It's, it's, it's a pejorative almost that they believe it in spite of evidence, in spite of what's obviously true. Well, is faith this leap in the dark against all obvious truth? Is it subjective in that sense? Well, the author of Hebrews has spoken of our faith and what we believe in The strength of it in somewhat subjective terms at times. Even in chapter 10, he spoke about our confidence to enter the holy places, our confidence that we have. He commanded us not to throw away our confidence, which has great reward. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. But it's interesting that in this passage which is the chapter where he now gets to talking about faith, and it's not really about faith, but it's those who believe by faith in God's promises. Nevertheless, by faith, by faith, by faith is the refrain here. So it's good to talk about faith. The words that he's chosen here in this first sentence are... Not soft words. They're not fuzzy words. They're not about things that we kind of hope might would be great one day if they happened, please. Not at all. I'll define faith in two ways here for us. Mining the first two verses for this two-part definition. First, faith is how we see God and God's promises for the future. It's how we see God and His promises for the future. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And yet he will say that it's by faith that we see God and seek Him. So I'm playing on words here, as it seems he does. It's it's not a sight with physical eyes, it's a sight with the heart and the mind. It's a spiritual seeing. Faith is how we see God and God's future promises. Promises for the future, rather. We'll meditate on each part here, this first sentence. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance there doesn't strike my ear as it might have struck the ear of an original hearer. This is the same word that would have been used in the very first lines of the book, that the Son is the exact imprint. It's the very nature of God. There is an exactness and a firmness and a solidity to this Assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Things, what things. That heavenly city, that better country, that rest to come, that inheritance guaranteed. Those things. So we're not talking about the next job and where our income will come from. Although the Lord is in those things and cares. But the concern of this book is that final destination, that final, complete, forever provision for you and for me of rest by which we enter into felt perfect, uninhibited fellowship with God in which there's, all, there's not only no guilt for sin keeping us from fellowship, but there is no temptation to sin, there is no proclivity to sin. Rest, that better country, that heavenly city, that we are pilgrims on our way to. Hoped for, assurance of things hoped for, which is to say, their future. They are, they are, in a sense, we taste them now, for we have come to the new Jerusalem, the author will say. We now draw near to God, and yet we remember what Peter says to his own readers, who have an inheritance Though now you see him, you love him. Though now you do not, though now you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with great joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Hoped for, things yet to come. There is a nowness to Christianity. We really have arrived at a real relationship with God in which we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and yet there is uh, still to come ness about christianity all, all that god has promised is not fully has not arrived in it's not arrived in full so for in this chapter we're going to see old testament figure after old testament figure who lived in light of future realities they firmly believed faith is the assurance of things hoped for The conviction of things not seen. Let's move into the second part of that sentence now. The conviction of things not seen. Another very strong word. Not a fuzzy word or a feely word. Conviction. In other words, proof or evidence of things not seen. It's legal language of things not seen. Things you can't see with your eyes. And this should, it's okay for us to be introspective to, to an extent and to examine ourselves and consider our own faith. But the goal of this sermon, nor these sermons, nor this book, is to get us to look at faith as like a thing that we have, like a thing that we have, and to focus on our faith. Rather, faith is that instrument by which we focus on Christ and the future that God has promised us. We lay hold of that by believing. So He talks about faith here for a moment, but, but then we'll be off to looking at how those who had faith believed in what God had promised them. In verse 3 gives us a bit of a, an insight into how this relationship between thing, unseen and seen things works. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The word of God is invisible. And we were not there when he spoke the universe into existence. But the very first thing we must believe, if we're to believe God is who He says He is, and Scripture is that He spoke into existence all things. In the beginning was God, and God spoke, and there was. Well, consider here that the things that the thing that is not visible, namely the Word of God, is manifested in the things that are visible. The universe that was created by his word. And similarly, similarly, our faith is an evidence and a proof that the invisible things of the future that God has promised are real. Christians gathering in local churches to sing and to pray and to hear the word preached and to go home and with God's help to keep his word That is a proof and evidence that the future things we're believing and singing of are actually true. And as we look to the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures, we're going to see proof and evidence that God's future promises of future things are actually true. As we watch, in this case, Abel and Enoch and Noah, and in the weeks ahead, Abraham and Sarah and Moses and others believe God's promises. And if you will, bring them to light, make them seen for all of us in their actions on behalf of those truths. Faith, in the first place, is how we see God and his promises for the future. Here's a second complementary phrase to define faith. Faith is how we receive God's approval and his promises in the future. So faith is how we see God and his promises for the future, and it's how we receive God's approval and his promises in the future. Faith is seeing, and it is a means of receiving. By it, the people of God of old received their commendation. By it, they received their commendation. Now, whatever else we might want to say about faith, if we were to noodle on this verse and other verses, this is what our author wanted us to hear concerning faith. And this is all that he, all the time he spends on it before he gets into inspiring us with stories of faith from the Bible. But we'll ruminate on verse 2 here before we move on still. What does that mean? For by it, the people of old received their Commendation. Well, he'll explain that as we keep reading, but we can reflect on it for a moment. By it, it's worth saying that whatever it is that they get from their faith, faith is not transactional but instrumental. Here's what I mean: it's not transactional that God God gives you something—a commendation in this sentence, whatever that is—we'll find out. It gives you a commendation, gives you something in response to or in exchange for your faith. Like you bring faith to the relationship, then he brings salvation, or in this case righteousness, as we'll see. It's instrumental. By it, the people of old received their commendation. So as we talk about faith here, what the author of Hebrews is saying is what other authors of our New Testament have said. Salvation is by grace, through faith, Faith is an instrument by which we receive. Faith is not transactional, something we bring and are rewarded in exchange for. It is not a, in other words, it's not a work that merits a commendation. We'll see how this works as the weeks unfold. This word commendation more legal language it's it's related to the words used in the rest of the book for testify or testimony and and witness in the case of tithes that are received by mortal men from hebrews 7 but in another case by the one of whom it is testified that he lives jesus testified Hebrews 7: For it is, of it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. It's the same word. Commendation. Receive their commendation. That God, that by our faith, we receive God's commendation. God takes the witness stand and says, They're mine. They're good. There's a repetition here in the chapter. Of This word commendation, we see it in verse 4. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended. What is the nature of this commendation? Commended as righteous. Verse 5, now before he was taken, Enoch, he was commended as having pleased God. Noah, in verse 7, by this he condemned the world and became an air of righteousness that comes through faith. doesn't use the word there, but you get the idea. And there at the very end of chapter 12, all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Though commended through their faith, this commendation of righteousness is... Crucial to what the author is doing. And there's some important background that we need to consider as we head into the rest of the chapter. You'll notice at the very end of chapter 10, right before chapter 11, I'll start reading in verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There, enduring faith receives what is promised in the future. For, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, what is this? He's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2. And Habakkuk is speaking to his audience and hearers concerning the the near coming of God's plans. The coming one will come and will not delay. He's speaking to those who are under pressure and tempted to leave off God's promises, a common theme in pressure for God's people. And he says, a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. Now some will shrink back, but my righteous one shall live by faith. The difference between those who shrink back and leave God and his promises and do not lay hold of them in the future, who never receive the promises, is faith, is believing the promises. And that faith, believing the promises of God, is not a moment thing, it's a life thing, and it works out in life, the righteous one shall live by faith. The one who shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but my soul has pleasure in the one who believes in me and lives by that faith. This word here, righteous and faith and pleasure, these are going to keep coming up in chapter 11. Verse 39 is like a springboard into chapter 11. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but... We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is always a thing that keeps going and doesn't shrink back and leave. We are not of those who shrink back and leave and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So now chapter 11 is an answer to question, well, what does that look like? And whereas the author has argued to us that we must hold fast to Jesus, now he compels us with the stories of those who held fast to God's promises in their day. And so we find ourselves in chapter 11. Among those who have not shrunk back and were destroyed, but among those who have faith and preserved their souls And so as we work through chapter 11 in these coming weeks, we are are putting ourselves among those who have not shrunk back. So show up ready, prayed up ready to be encouraged and strengthened by the faith of those who have gone before us. And the author of Hebrews, having quoted from Habakkuk and that line about those who don't shrink back are those who. Have faith and are righteous by faith, he's going to tell the whole Old Testament story through the prism of that verse. And so that's what we're going to start doing this morning. Faith is not a thing on which we focus, rather, it is the way that we focus on God and his promises. Faith is how we see God and God's promises for the future. And faith is how we receive God's approval, commendation, and His promises in the future. And so our question is not, in, as a matter of emphasis, do I have faith? It is rather, who am I believing? If your question, your dominant question is, do I have faith? and you're the subject of that sentence do I have faith and faith is the object what even is it well you can say that and and not even know it but mean all the right things we don't mean to be so picky about our grammar and yet the way things come out of our heart and mouth and, and prayers can reflect a place of emphasis that can lead us wrong That's why I'm saying dominant question is not do I have faith, but who am I believing? Are we of those who shrink back or of those who by faith receive the commendation and pleasure of God, laying hold of his promises in the future? Okay, so what does faith look like? This morning we're taking a look at four characters. There is A rhyme and a reason to how we're breaking this chapter up. The rest of the chapter will feel like this week's uh, uh, material. Three characters today, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. These are found at the very beginning of the Bible between chapters three and chapter nine. Next week, Abraham through Joseph, which is really the Abraham story. That's the rest of Genesis. On the 26th, Matt Jackson will preach for us, our director of student and family ministry. And that will take us through the story of Moses and into the land. And then the fourth week will be the rest of the story. Our author is a good preacher, and he will not wear us out. And so we won't do more than four weeks. And he just gets the rest of the Bible's story done in a paragraph to get to his point in chapter 12 that we might look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the characters that we're going to examine here and begin today were not without sin, were not perfect, even had faltering faith. But Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he is the one to whom we ultimately look. All their failures pointed us to Jesus' perfection. Okay, so what does faith look like we have uh, an example list here, and they roughly follow the same pattern. We we have the line by faith, then we have the name of the character, and then we have typically some action taken in the course of believing and on account of believing, and then we have a commendation. Not every character will have all those things, but that's the general pattern they follow. And at least for this sermon, I've given each. I, I've struggled over the outline. Every outline I came with was just super boring, and I shouldn't say that, but it was kind of repeating, you know, Abel could have done that. We talk about Abel. Well, that would preach just fine, because the sermon isn't the outline. But I thought, well, how can I be a little poetic here? Here's a shot. Abel, a man of blood, Enoch, a man of steel, and Noah, a man of the world. Are you ready? Okay. Abel, a man of blood. This takes us back to the story of Abel, and since it's easy enough to get to, we will go there together, Genesis chapter 4. What I'd like us to do, where it's reasonable, is to read the story in its original place and then zip back to Hebrews and let the author preach that story to us through the prism of Habakkuk chapter 2. So, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now let's turn back to the book of Hebrews. Keep a finger in the book of Hebrews. We'll be doing this a few times. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. How was it more acceptable? Oh, there are lots of speculative answers to this and some better and worse guesses. We were left hanging. Apparently, it wasn't necessary that we knew Only that we must offer an acceptable sacrifice to God. And maybe the details were left out because, well, that's a pretty good takeaway for us, isn't it? Are you offering an acceptable sacrifice to God today? And no, I don't mean in in the first instance singing that would please Him by its quality or even sincerity in the moment. But are you coming through Jesus and His blood? offering to God a sacrifice that he accepts and coming on his terms. They were to come to God on his terms because he would accept a sacrifice and reject another. So it must have been, we could infer, that he gave some instructions concerning what was to be expected. And Cain, it's, if all we had was the page and there was no, nothing else ever to have happened, and if we read, stories and we consider that an omission means God had not given instruction then we might feel like this is unfair but there's no reason to see that it's enough for us to infer that there were instructions given and one sacrifice was not acceptable and one sacrifice was and Cain would have understood what God was talking about now some will say it's the quality of the sacrifice so so Abel's sacrifice was the firstborn from his flock, and it included the fat portions, the really good stuff and and, uh, and and Cain's offering did not include the best. Well, maybe that's the case it may be it may be the case, may well be the case that it wasn't the quality of the sacrifice, but the kind, so that Abel offers a sacrifice which is an animal sacrifice and involves blood and. And Cain doesn't offer up an animal. Now if that's the case, how all that works, because one worked the ground and one worked with animals isn't exactly sure. We know that only a page earlier in Genesis you have the promise of death because of sin but the delay of death and God kills animals and covers Adam and Eve before he sends them out. There are these little hints that our, the covering of our shame will involve the death of someone. Will involve blood. And we might infer that it's not the quality of a sacrifice, but the kind of sacrifice offered. And in that case, then this line about Abel being a man of blood is all the more instructive and worth remembering. But it works anyways, which you'll see. So... All we need to know is that he offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. A sacrifice that God would accept, which apparently is important for our relationship with God. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So we know that the author here is interpreting that first story through Habakkuk's words about one being commended as righteous on account of their faith. Well, here, God has accepted his gifts and the author reasons that he was commended, therefore, as righteous. And he says, and through faith, though he died, he still died. Speaks, But let's meditate for a moment on that commendation. It is not that Abel was commended in response to faith, but that it is on account of his faith that Abel obeyed the Lord and offered an acceptable sacrifice. And for that reason he was commended just trying to keep us from staring at our faith too much. In this case, his faith worked itself out, believing God's word and trusting what God said when his brother was doing his own thing and maybe getting away with a cheaper offering. He believed God and took him at his word and kept his word on account of faith. And God commended him as righteous. This matter of faith, then, here at the very beginning of the Bible, divides humanity. Consider that this is the first story after humanity's fallen to sin. In Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks and creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, in his image. He gives them everything save one tree. They don't take him at his word and give thanks to him for his benevolent gifts. But want the one thing that he has kept from them, and just as God promised, a promise they did not believe, they would fall into death. And they're under the curse of death, and they're banished from the garden. The very next scene, curtain closes, curtain opens. Years later, they have kids, because God has made a promise that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so there are going to be children to come, And when Adam names his wife Eve, it means mother of the living, so he was believing that promise. Good for him. But as the curtain opens, we've got two kids. We've got Cain and we've got Abel. And they're having a hard time. And it's not just everyday old sibling rivalry, although if some siblings get what they want in their worst moments, maybe it is. No, this is a sibling rivalry in the context of serving God and worshiping Him and obeying Him, that leads to the murder of one brother by another. So how encouraged must mom and dad have been? The one who is offering the good sacrifices and faith to God has died, and all they've got now is a murderer. So much for God promising that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, of course, more children come. Well, faith divides humanity. Right here, right out of the gate, one believes God and is credited as righteous, his gift accepted, and the other one does not believe God, but spites him, shrinks back in his own way, does his own thing. Well, which are you? Are you you believing God's word this morning? Are you here because you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him and that You're coming because of him and for him and because of his promises? Well, I hope so. And if that's the case, then you have every reason for encouragement. And I'd exhort you to hold fast and not to give up believing God. Well, this is our first character that we've examined. Abel. And it's really rough. I mean, we can relate with Abel up to a point. We're all still alive. We haven't been killed yet for obeying God. As some are. Some have been in our own day, across the story of the Bible, and right out of the gate here, our first Old Testament hero, if you want to call him that, is murdered for obedience to God's word from faith. Murdered for his faith. Martyred even. It's a gloomy beginning. But... That is not the only kind of example we have. And I guess that's good news. It doesn't go that way for all of us. And it's good news because to the extent that it doesn't go this way for all of us, we can still know that we have real faith. Now to our second character, Enoch. Enoch, a man of steel. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him now therefore he was taken when he before he was taken he was commended as having pleased god and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him you know abel up here was looking forward He even looks forward to the grave, if you will. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His blood crying out from the ground. God is faithful and just, and he will bring justice. His blood is crying out to the ground to God, God said. Well, thankfully, there is better blood for us in Jesus But that blood cries out looking forward to the day when God will fulfill his promise. Crying out, God is faithful and God is just. Well, here is another one who was apparently looking forward, but in a different way. Enoch. And let's turn to his story, back to Genesis, one chapter to the right. Genesis chapter 5. Now, I'm just going to point some things out here. We're not going to read this whole chapter. This is the book of the generations of Adam. All right, so so come chapter 5, sin has been spreading throughout the world after we've left the garden. It's a disease, and it is running in every direction. And now in chapter 5, we get a genealogy, a record of humanity since Adam. To the point. To this point. Or that point. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. All the days of Adam lived... Were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. Now let's look at verse eight. Thus, all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. Verse eleven. All the days of Enosh nine hundred five years, and he died. Verse fourteen. All the days of Kenan were nine hundred ten years, and he died. Verse twenty. All the days of Jared were nine hundred sixty-two years, and he died. Verse twenty-one. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Verse 31, all the days of Lamech, 777 years, and he died. You get the idea. There is a pattern, a very distinct pattern in this chapter. And the message of that pattern is, outside of Eden, God's keeping his promise, humanity is under the curse of death, and humans die. They live and they die, live and they die, they live and they die. But then there is a point being made that is complementary to that point And important, if you will, a seed planted that is intended to grow, and you're not meant to miss it. And that is in chapter, verse, excuse me, verse 25. That Enoch didn't just live, but Enoch walked with God, and he did not die. He was not, for God took him. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this, and he interprets it through Habakkuk's prophecy. By faith, Enoch, back to Hebrews now, was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So here's Enoch in a world marked by death, in a world after the fall, and if you read that rest of that chapter before, Cain's kids and the kids... From Adam's line, we're a mockery to God, involved in every kind of trouble and debauchery and murder. And by the time we get to Noah, we'll see violence fills the earth. It's an evil age and it's an evil day. And in that day, Enoch walks with God. And in his case, he doesn't die, but he is taken up. Though the mystery there as to how that works and where precisely he is and all of that, we'll find it out one day. But we believe it by faith because it's right here. A man of steel, indestructible if you will, taken up from this earth but not from this earth. By faith it says, well how do we know? Because Genesis didn't say that. Well it says... Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. It's interesting, is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament that these readers would have been reading would actually translate, he walked with God, he pleased God. Isn't that another way to say it? God was pleased with him. He walked with God. God was pleased with him. They had, a, they had fellowship together. They delighted in one another. This man delighted in God. He was pleased in God and God was pleased with him. And he reasons, verse 6, and now without faith it's impossible to please him. Well, how are you walking with God whom you cannot see and pleasing him with your life apart from faith? There's no pleasing God apart from faith. There's no walking with God apart from faith. Which means whatever vague notions you have about God, you may assent to a higher power or to a God generally, but apart from faith in the Word of God, the specific God who created this specific universe, who speaks specifically to us in His Word, it's impossible to please Him, to walk with Him. We're even told that He doesn't hear our prayers because of our sins apart from the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And so to be a Christian in the first place isn't to decide to walk with God. It's to believe in God's promise by faith that our sins are forgiven through Jesus. And then to walk with him. First it has to be possible for us to worship him through an acceptable sacrifice. And then we walk with him in the course of life. It's interesting. There almost appears to be an order of things in The chapter, sacrifice and worship, Abel, and now walking with God and living with him in fellowship, Enoch. He pleased God and so he was commended. He walked with God by faith and so he was commended as as righteous. Enoch, a man of steel. Well, Enoch must have been laying hold of that promise given to his great 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 grandparents that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He didn't have too much detail, but he knew, as all his forefathers had died and death was all around him, that there would be one who would undo the curse of death. He was looking forward in some fashion to something better to come. Whoever would draw near to God, walk with God, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And in that sense, don't worry about being selfish in your walk with God. Don't worry about being selfish in coming to church. Don't worry about being selfish in praying. Just be concerned with that which God promises to you to be selfish about. You see? God has promised a new heavens and a new earth. God has promised a resurrection body. God has promised that one day you will see Jesus face to face. And those promises for you, which are for you because He loves you, because He is a benevolent God, those promises are to propel you into the future through your current hardship. Whatever you're going through right now, look forward to the better thing that God has promised, and it will get you through. He doesn't say it will be okay as if to downplay your current hardship. However, in whatever way, it's hard to obey Jesus. Jesus. He rather upplays future glory. That future glory you will not be able to compare, even compare with the suffering you're enduring right now. It won't be able to touch it. Friends, let's come looking forward to what God has for us. And in fact, when you look forward to the reward that he promises to those who seek him, that's not a work. And that's not selfish in any sinful sense. That praises the glorious faithfulness of God. That's faith. Faith that commends God as faithful. When you believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him and to come to Him, you are saying with your heart and with your mind and with your action and coming to Him, I believe you're faithful. And that commends Him. As glorious. What is it to be a Christian? Well, faith. Well, let's fill that out a little bit. It's to come to God by faith with an acceptable sacrifice. In the right blood of Jesus. It is to believe that He exists, that He's the God of all creation, and that He rewards those who seek Him. And finally, Noah, a man of the world. We won't turn there. Perhaps you know the story. Noah lived in an evil age when the world was corrupted and the thoughts and intents of men's heart was only evil continually. It was a wicked, wicked day. And we're told that Noah was commended as blameless. Noah was a man who believed God's word. Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. And what were those events? But the events of judgment to come. The whole world being filled with water, death, judgment. And he believed those events because God spoke them to him. And in reverent fear, what did he do? Because he believed those those coming events, but he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Alexander McLaren remarks, No doubt there were plenty of witty and wise things said about him, and yet one morning rain began and continued for 40 days, and it did not stop, and they began to think perhaps after all there was some method in his madness. Noah got into his ark and it still rained. And I wonder what they thought about it then, with the water up to their knees and how their, guy, how their jests would die in their throats when it reached their lips. Just imagine the mockery that Noah would have undergone in his life, building a giant boat way out from sea, way, way out from sea, a giant boat pulling animals into it with a word concerning God's future judgment, totally ridiculous, the things that he believed that were coming down the road. But he fully believed them, and that's why out of reverent fear, not fearing the voices of men around him and not shrinking back because of their insults, but fearing God. And for his family, apart from faithful obedience, he constructed that ark and he put his family in that ark. And just as God had promised, through faith in his word, he saved that family. The whole world looked on and mocked. He He was a witness to the whole world concerning sin and judgment to come. And yet God has salvation available now to the whole world through that man's faith, then we stand in his line. He witnessed to future things coming, and so do we. Well, we're three characters in, just six chapters of the Bible, and he will speed up from here in the coming weeks. There does seem to be a kind of order to it. Worship through blood. A walk with God in fellowship with Him. And then an accent with Moses here on his practical, concrete work of obedience, which comes after the other two. And I don't know if God planted these there so... uh, Well, I don't know that the author of Hebrews is trying to make that point. But it's curious to me that as the story of the Bible unfolds, God doesn't give it all away at once. But hints that we come to him through an acceptable sacrifice. That, that, the purpose of, that his purpose with us is unto a relationship, a walk with him. That salvation will come through a commendation of righteousness that is not from a work of ours, but because of and by faith in his word. And that that works itself out in obedience that doesn't shrink back in the face of insults all around us as Noah would have known in his day, but rather holds fast until the end when the water comes and you get in the ark. And of course, Jesus, friends, is our ark. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we've come this morning seeking a homeland. This world is it's home for now in a way that it is not our home. And we're reminded because of what we've been through this week and our struggle with sin this week that we are not home yet. But though we don't see Jesus, we will see Him face to face. And even now we see Him with the eyes of our heart so that our faith in Jesus, which drove us here today, And as the explanation for any of our obedience is proof to the world, even to us, just as these figures have offered evidence that the promises really are true. And as you created the universe by your invisible word, so you are creating new life in us and sustaining us by faith in your invisible word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.